I'll say bless the Lord if you say, oh my soul, bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Oh my goodness, Brooke. We're so thankful for her. She's a worship pastor. We steal from another church often. Um, and you just need to know, I, I love serving with Michael Boggs. Um, you guys get to see him maybe one hour a week. I get to see him 40 hours a week. And he's the real deal. And you get about an inch of the depth that that man carries and walks with Jesus and is constantly pursuing uh, the Holy Spirit's direction in his life. And I'm so honored to work and serve alongside of him. Um, I'm totally man crushing on him, so I'll stop. Um, I'm Chris, I'm the pastor here. Um, I'm here to affirm you in case you need some. Uh, Kairos is our honest and unique attempt to connect to God and each other. We wanna engage the whole person with the whole gospel anywhere, anytime, with anybody. And the way that we're doing this right now is we're in a spiritual formation series called Fault Lines. Um, and it may not be as fun as our other series. What we're doing is we're just trying to take tools from scripture. Um, we're trying to do exactly what Boggs told a story about. We're trying to see ourselves through the word of God. And we're gonna use tools and diagrams just all so that we can say to the Holy Spirit, would you create in me a new heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me? And we're trying to take a look at the fault lines that have been created in our life, where we're susceptible to sin and temptation, where the core deposits came from our favorite sins. What are the things that I am most tempted to believe about God and myself that will actively derail me from his calling and what he wants to do in and through me? So it's not super fun. If you walk out of here, um, just going, oh, I'll take that as a sign of success. I've been praying over this room for clarity and conviction and for eyes to see and the courage to drill down deep with the Holy Spirit so that you can step into a glorious and dangerous freedom. So that's, that's where we're at. And with your permission, I'm gonna jump right in. We're in Luke chapter four, and we're gonna continue to read through the temptations of Jesus because we believe that he was the new Adam and he was tempted in every way, that humanity was tempted and yet found sinless. I don't believe Satan is creative. I think he masquerades as an angel of light and all he can do is bend God's goodness and creativity. So I don't think much of his strategy or tactics has changed. Unfortunately, it's still working. So what we're trying to do is defang the enemy while Jesus crushes his head for his grip that he has on your life in certain areas. We don't just want to trim the weeds, we want to uproot them and plant God's word deep into the soil of our lives and our heart. And that's what we're gonna ask the word of God to do. So if you'll pray with me as we're turning there. Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Jesus, would you go before us in this text and make a way? And together we say, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Luke chapter four, starting in verse one. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, then tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it'll all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve 
him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and he had him stand on a high this point of the temple, and he said, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, because it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift, up, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left them until a more opportune time. I'll say the word of the Lord if you'll say thanks be to God. The word of the Lord. So um, if you're catching up with us, my markers are out of order, just give me a second. (laughs) Why the guy with learning disabilities figures it out. Uh, If you're just catching up with us, um, you're more than welcome to go back online and find out some of the groundwork that we've laid so far. What we're taking a look at is the core fault lines or life drifts, life drifts that we're prone to. So the first one that we see in here is appetite. When Satan tempts him to turn the bread, uh, the stone into bread. The second one we're looking at is ambition. Chances are really good that I'm going to misspell something. Please do not point and laugh because this one's mine. Approval is the third one. <laughs> and there it goes. <laughs> so prophetic. Those are the three areas that we've been looking at and trying to go, which one am I most susceptible to? Where does Satan know that when I am at my weakest or even my strongest, he can come along with appetite, ambition, or approval? It doesn't matter how he dresses it up, I am particularly prone towards that certain temptation. So he tempts Jesus when he's hungry, he tempts Jesus with his holy ambition um, to have every tribe, tongue, and nation bow down to him, but short-circuit it, get the kingdom without the cross. And he tempts him with his approval to jump down from the temple and prove that the heavenly father loves you and won't let anything bad happen to you. So we're looking at those through our own life grid. Now, if you'll remember, um, much credit to Dave Rhodes and a guy named Mike Breen, who were the first people to introduce me to this. So the concepts that I'm going to teach tonight, I learned first from them. Um, and Mike uh, is actually a pastor in the UK who came over to the States about 15 years ago. And as he was exegeting this text, that's a fancy word that we pay lots of dollars to be able to say when we go to seminary, that simply means you're just getting in the text and making sure you're drawing meaning out of it, not putting it into it. He decided he was also going to exegete his new country's culture. As a Brit with a fancy accent who sounds snooty and smarter than you, he decided to look around at American culture and take a, as a lens through appetite, ambition, and approval. Because here's one of the deals, uh, men and women. Um, you don't just struggle with these sins individually. Ultimately, they have a collective cultural representation. So there's another lie for you that your sin only affects you. Um, in appetite, he looked at American culture and he says this is consumerism. Americans are obsessed with buying and purchasing goods and services. With ambition, he said Americans are obsessed with competition. They love to win. That's right, brother. You remember that one, don't you? We celebrate on July 4th. Red coat. (laughs) Sorry, I'm I'm not not supposed to make political jokes. I apologize. But that one, it feels like we won, so... 
is going nowhere. <laughs> and approval, he says, you Americans have an infatuation with celebrity. So I'm going to walk through these cultural markers and some of the lies that are told with them. And this is for you just to dig a little bit down deeper into your soul and go, which one am I most prone to? Which one has a lot of gravity sometimes in the spiritual and the physical to draw me off course from the life God intended me to live? You'll notice one of Jesus' response was, worship God and serve him only. Which one of these says, I'll worship God and serve him, but not him only? There's something else I need to meet the core desires of my heart and my soul. So uh, let's get a couple, a little bit of help. We'll need some outside voices to help confirm that this is actually accurate. For consumerism, Oscar Wilde said, nowadays people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. And then the great fictional theologian who uh, is my spirit animal, Tyler Durden from Fight Club said, the things you own wind up owning you. It's consumerism, right? Um, do you know that right now, estimated from CNBC poll, um, 78% of full-time employed Americans still live paycheck to paycheck. That's not even accounting for the inoperable sums of consumer debt that we're amassing all the time. It is the compulsive drive in all of us to buy the things we don't need with the money that we don't have to impress people we don't even know. And we always find ourselves, well, if I just get this new thing or if I just have another wow moment or if my brain just releases a little bit more dopamine, then finally it will be enough. But it never is. And the lie that Satan sells with consumerism is I will never have enough. So it's always more. From the cars we drive to the shoes we wear to the degrees that hang on our wall. More, 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 more. And if you've ever had the opportunity to go overseas or visit third world countries, one of the, a lot of things that Americans walk away with uh, being around impoverished people is I can't believe they're so happy. Maybe they know something we don't. The second one is competition. Let's see if Lance can help us out with competition. Here is an exact quote from him in June 2012. I have never doped, competed as an endurance athlete for 25 years with no spike in performance, passed more than 500 drug tests and never failed one. Six months later, all the fault and all the blame falls on me. I view this situation as one big lie that I repeated a lot of times. And then there's Troy Aikman, who after winning his second Super Bowl, the culmination of accomplishment and competition in football, is quoted as saying, is this all there is? Isn't it interesting that Disney decided that that accomplishment wasn't enough. So their marketing campaign was, after you've accomplished one of the greatest sporting things ever, that's not enough. Now you need to go to Disney World, right? <laughs> that's hitting ambition with consumerism, right? <laughs> Buy this and your kids will love you while you spend $900 on a hot dog. Great, can't wait. <laughs> I guess at that point you can afford it. 
We love competition, don't we? We're Americans. We want winners and losers and we wanna know the difference. We wanna know who you are and whether or not I need to hang out with you. Man, it's from everything. You, you, you pick your genre, right? You, you wanna know Forbes magazine, who's the richest person alive? People magazine, who's the sexiest person alive? You wanna know Billboard, what's the top downloaded song right now? Who's the winners, who's the losers, who's above you? New York Times bestsellers. And especially, Lord have mercy, I got introduced to this after seven years of living in Tuscaloosa. We love for our college teams to win and especially when they beat yours, right? And do you know someone whose identity is wrapped up just a little bit too tight in the success or failure of their college team? We love competition. We want the winners and we want the losers. Now, I don't think there's necessarily anything inherently wrong. Don't, we will eventually, you gotta keep coming back. It'll eventually get better, but it's still gonna get worse. The good side of competition is it drives us and brings out our best. The shadow side is when you only think you have value or worth when you win and you'll win at all costs, no matter the cost to you or to someone else. And if I'm not a winner, then I must be a loser. And the lie that you tell to yourself or that was told to you, which is probably more accurate, is I will never accomplish enough. Two Super Bowls and stories of men weeping in the locker room. Is this it? This is what I've spent my whole life and sacrificed for? Not that that's inherently wrong, but once again, when you believe the lie, I will never accomplish enough, it never will be enough. And immediately you'll move on to the next thing, never celebrating what God has already done in your life. Celebrity, Lady Gaga is gonna help us out. This brilliant quote, I've always been famous, it's just no one knew it yet. <laughs> so Gaga, I don't even know it. So I don't even know if that's a thing. Um, hey Nashville, I'm about to pick your row of corn, okay? That's a Southern expression my pastor told me. Because about 60% of you in this room moved here because you wanted to be a celebrity. And what you're really struggling with is self-worth and you're hoping that someone else will tell you you're actually worth it and that you're good enough. And they've got an entire industry built around your dreams. From reality shows that we watch who make people famous for being famous to other reality shows where you'll line up around city blocks, miles long, all for your chance to walk on a stage, stand in a spotlight, and beg judges and audiences, please confer upon me the value of celebrity. Please tell me I'm somebody. Only to discover that that's never gonna cure the lie that you believe. Because the lie of celebrity is I will never be enough. So there's a guy named Jim Fowles. He's a professor of media at the University of Houston. He wrote a book called Starstruck, Celebrity Performers in the American Public. Did a study of 100 stars 
Hollywood entertainers, sports stars, musicians, and celebrities, and found that they are four times more likely to kill themselves than the average American. He also found that their life expectancy is 20 years less. Average American is 72. Overall, the average celebrity death is at 58. He says, celebrities, I believe, are the sacrificial victims of our adoration. He went on to say, this was an article in Psychology Today, and it said, there's nothing worse than people's adulation than when it's gone. And what you realize is, I only have approval or worth or value when I'm being exactly who you want me to be. And if I'm not performing and I'm not living up to the lie of who you think I really am, then I got nothing. So which one for you are you most prone to? Do you find yourself going out for a quick fix, just buy something when you're feeling down? Is it competition, daggone it, let me beat somebody to feel better about myself? Or is it approval, is it celebrity? Is it, oh, let me post this really cool picture or this insightful quote and then incessantly refresh and see how many people have liked it or retweeted it. No one's ever done that in this room, right? And oh my gosh, somebody likes me. Oh my gosh, somebody's downloaded me. Oh my gosh, someone's following me. And all it is is a big temptation to find your identity and your worship anywhere but in the Father. So let's... I'm gonna land it here. I'm gonna ask you to ask the Holy Spirit, would you draw me to the one that has my name on it? And I think this will be helpful. This is incredibly convicting for me when I first went through it. I'm gonna list up here the core emotions that go with it. For appetite, it's fear. Fear that I will never have enough. I worked with a guy whose spouse uh, worked at a children's home for girls and she would come home and tell about weekly they would have to go into their closets and take out rotting and festering food because the girls would hoard it. And I'm like, what's wrong with y'all? Do you need some extra donations? Can you not feed these girls? What's going on? She's like, Chris, you have no idea the fear that they've come from and the trauma that they've experienced. Even though they are safe and loved and valued and fed more than they could ever eat and have access to as much food as they possibly want, something deep down inside of them screams, take it now or it's gonna go away. Core emotion for consumerism and appetite is fear. I don't take it now. I'll never have enough. God will not provide for me. With competition, it's guilt and ambition, which is I will never be enough. I'll never accomplish enough. I can't win enough things to make sure that I finally arrived. As silly as it sounds, the image that comes to my mind from my 1980s childhood is the awesome movie Breakfast Club, where Emilio Estevez plays a character named Andrew, And they're at the top, as only an 80s teen drama can do, and they're going through why they're all in detention for that day. And he talks about seeing a weak, pathetic boy in the locker room, and the next thing he knows, he's beating him and bullying him. In a moment of self-reflection where he tries to figure out where that comes from, he says, all I hear is my father's voice and his attitude towards weakness. Andrew! We do not tolerate losers in this family. Andrew, I need you to be number one. Win, 
When? When? As tears are coming down his eyes. And his next statement is this. Sometimes I wish my knee would just go out so I couldn't wrestle anymore and he would leave me alone. He's got the lie of I will never accomplish enough. There's such raging guilt in me that I am not acceptable, lovable, or valuable if I'm not accomplishing these things. And then there's shame, which is the core emotion around approval and celebrity and the lie, I will never be enough. I always think of the Janis Joplin quote. She was a rocker, I think, from the 70s. Figuratively, she would say this, every night I walk on stage and I make love to 100,000 people, and then I go back to a hotel room alone. Or it's Madonna, who in her documentary said there could be a room of 100 people and 99 of them tell me how great of an artist I am, how awesome creatively I am, how unbelievable I have been at reinventing myself age after age after age after age. And the one says, I don't like it. I obsess over him and figure out how I fix his perception of me. I will never be enough to cope with the shame I continue to perform. And I continue to try to seek out your adulation as manipulation to fill a hole that you could never fill. And then I blame you when you can't. So which one has your number on it tonight? If it's fear, guilt, or shame, you just need to know the gospel has something to say to that, that the blood of Christ speaks a better word over all those areas. If it's fear, it's Hebrews 13.6 that says, God is my helper, whom shall I fear? God is your helper. He is present with you in every situation. You do not need to be afraid. If it's guilt, it's Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. If I was to translate condemnation as a legal term, it would say you're not guilty anymore because you're in Christ Jesus. He has accomplished satisfying the righteous requirements of the law. It's not about what you can do, but what has been done for you. And shame is Romans 9, 33. For those who believe in him, you will never be put to shame. You have the unconditional acceptance and approval of your father because of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So we're gonna put a graphic up on the screen to help you process this. I want you to take 120 seconds and I simply want you to ask the Holy Spirit, which one is my fault line? What core emotion is underneath my favorite sin that continues to drive me to it? And as you process that, take as much time as you need, then I would just offer two steps after that. Offer it to Jesus. Ask him to heal it and redeem it. And then ask him, what's the next step I need to take in living in freedom from that this week? Let's listen together.